Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Lift your eyes up. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show, sponsored by Sunbury Press, publisher of books under nine different imprints in a variety of categories, available worldwide wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder of Sunbury Press. Today, I'm talking to author Arthur Hoyle, uh, the author of Mavericks, Mystics, and Misfits. It takes the reader on a journey across American history through the lives of exemplary men and women whose stories capture the spirit of their time and place and reveal the American character. Author Hoyle is a writer, educator, and independent filmmaker. His documentary films have won numerous awards that have aired on PBS, and he received a media grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Before becoming an author, he produced corporate communications materials and print and video for a broad array of clients. He received bachelor's and master's degrees in English from the University of California, Los Angeles, and taught English, coached tennis, and served as an administrator in independent schools. He currently volunteers as a naturalist in the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, leading interpretive walks on the Chumash Indian culture. His biography of Henry Miller, The Unknown Henry Miller, a seeker in Big Sur, was published in March 2014 by Skyhorse Arcade. He's also published essays in Huffington Post, Empty Mirror, Across the Margin, Counterpunch, and As It Ought to Be. Arthur comes to us today from Pacific Palisades, California. Welcome, Arthur Hoyle. Well, thank you, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be on air with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, let's let's talk about the book here, uh, Mavericks, Mystics, and Misfits. Um, we won't categorize each of the, the people into whether they're a maverick, a mystic, or a misfit, but uh, there are 10 interesting people here, and it's sort of an eclectic accumulation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how this came about and how you selected your, your subjects. Well, the, the inspiration for this book actually came from uh, my, my biography of, of Miller, um, Miller has this concept uh, that he writes about frequently uh, of the exemplar, uh, a person that he considers to be a kind of model human being. Usually he, he uh, gives artists that label, uh, but he also uh, assigns it to spiritual figures uh, and uh, just people who are, are, are outstanding in the way they live their lives. So I took this concept and thought about how I could do a history of the United States uh, by telling the stories of exemplary men and women who lived in kind of key periods of our country's history, starting with the uh, Puritan settlements in New England and taking the reader through the, the Revolutionary War, the Western Migration, the Industrial Revolution, the Civil War, and so on into the 20th century, and ending uh, with a chapter on a couple who are uh, breaking ground for the future in the, in the realm of agriculture. 
uh, by practicing something called permaculture. Uh, and so the, the, the book sort of begins and ends uh, with people who broke away from convention and started their own communities. The, the first person to do that in the book was Roger Williams, the founder of Providence, Rhode Island, who broke from the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then uh, in, in 2020, we were with uh, Warren and Cindy Brush up in Ventura County, California, on their little farm. So that was kind of like the, uh, the concept and the, and the uh, motivation for writing the book. Now, as to how I selected the people, uh, that was the fun part of, the, of writing the book because uh, I just did a lot of research into each of these um, epochs, uh, and then kind of using a zoom lens, uh, I would narrow it down until I had found an individual who I thought uh, his, his or her life story kind of uh, crystallized what was important about that period. Uh, and I just would go chapter to chapter, uh, uh, you know, starting with a broad survey of the period and then increasingly narrowing my focus until I had settled on someone and then digging around with as much, you know, for as much information as I could find about that person. Yeah. So that was kind of the Very journey, the journey for, for writing the book. Yeah, so over 300 years, 350 years of, of history encapsulated here. And, and looking down the list of Roger Williams, Anne Bradstreet, Thomas Paine, Josiah Gregg, William and Ellen Craft, Horston Veblen, Thomas Merton, Brummett Echohawk, Judith Baca, and then you mentioned Warren Brush and Cynthia Harbin Brush. You know, from my experience looking at that list, a few of those names stand out, people that I've, that I've heard of. Certainly, Williams, Bradstreet, Payne, uh, Merton, Veblen. The others are new to me. And uh, what I thought we might do is just spend a few minutes just touching on each one. I know you, you mentioned Roger Williams a little bit. So why don't we jump to, to Anne Bradstreet? Um, who was she? How did she stand out for you? Well, I saw her as uh, kind of significant for two reasons. One, in, in this Puritan settlement in New England, conditions were very difficult. Um, the, 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 the immigrants who came uh, to practice religious freedom were shocked at uh, how harsh the life was that they had uh, embarked on. And, um, and just survival um, was, was a struggle. And a lot of people gave up after the first year and went home. But more people came. And what struck me was that in this extremely different, uh, difficult um, environment, Anne Bradstreet, who had numerous children, she was a housewife, she had a lot of responsibilities in the community, was managing to write amazing poetry. And um, this poetry was um, epic in scale and uh, very formal in its, uh, in its style uh, and, and very thoughtful in its ideas and very skilled in its in its rhyme schemes, and I was just amazed that she was able to do that. Uh, and then the other part of her story that that interested me was that she was really uh, the first feminist because she was transcending the gender role for women in the Puritan period. 
Uh, women were not thought of as having the capability to write poetry like this. And that was true not only in New England, but in, in the mother country as well. Women were just not considered to be um, intelligent enough to write the same kind of poetry as men. So, so those were the two things about Anne Bradstreet that stood out for me. One, that she was able to write poetry under those conditions, and two, that she was uh, do, doing it kind of in, in, um, you know, in, in dissent, I guess you'd say, from prevailing ideas about what women could accomplish. Mm. And then we move along to the American Revolution. Um, I'm very interested in, as someone who is writing about the American Revolution quite a bit lately, with uh, one of our book projects, Graves of Our Founders, visiting the graves of 200-plus founders of the United States. Uh, you know, it's been to uh, sort of contemplate that and, and to think about, um, you know, who to include, why to include them, you know, what are the standards for that. And as I think about all the potential people that could have been included for the revolutionary period, I see Thomas Paine. So I'm, you know, certainly uh, Common Sense, a very important pamphlet and very influential. But um, tell us why Thomas Paine stood out for you regarding the revolution. Well, it was, um, I think it was because he was so anti-authoritarian. Uh, that just really appealed to me. I mean, he, he uh you know, he, he, he spent his youth and early manhood in, in England, and he, um, he came into conflict with the government of, of England on a, on a number of fronts because of his service as an as a excise man, a man who collected taxes. And he saw how corrupt that system was, and he traced the corruption all the way to the, to the monarchy, and, and he became a very outspoken anti-monarchist. Uh, and when his life collapsed in, in, in England because of financial setbacks and, uh, you know, very disappointing uh, losses in his personal life, um, and he decided to start over, um, he was sort of joining the movement to, to the new world that was propelling a lot of, a lot of people who wanted a, a fresh start. Um, but he came with a lot of tools and, and attitudes that made him a pivotal figure. And when he arrived, the, 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 the colonists were already starting to chafe at some of the um, restrictions and demands being placed upon them by the mother country. And uh, there were sort of two schools of thought in the, colony, in the colonies about this. You know, some thought that, that they should try for accommodation with the mother country. They thought of themselves as Englishmen. They didn't want to break with, uh, you know, with, with the monarch. They didn't want to break with their mother country. And then there were others like Samuel Adams who were, who were more radical, who wanted to break away. And there was this kind of debate that was going on um, between these two factions in the, in the colonies. And Paine was the figure who came in and tipped the balance in favor of revolution through, his, through the pamphlet that you mentioned, Common Sense. And it was a powerful polemic that persuaded a lot of people, including George Washington, uh, that revolution was uh, the path that they had to follow. So he was, um, he was really a significant figure in, in the, you know, the birth of our country. 
and not only because of the pamphlet, but also because um, many of his ideas about how the new uh, country should be structured uh, found their way into our Constitution. So he was very visionary. Um, and the, the whole um, uh, basis of his, of his thinking was uh, that you had to liberate the people from authoritarian figures above them. Um, so he was a, he was very democratic in his in his thinking and and that um, to me made him uh, a, a kind of archetypal American. Yeah, yeah he's a fascinating figure. Uh, the research that we've done about Thomas Paine, I think he was buried in New York, or uh, initially buried in New York in Rye, New York. If yeah, I'm they not they picked they picked yeah. up his bones and and moved them to England and then they were lost. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the strangest stories. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the strangest stories about uh, founding fathers' remains, (laughs) where they are. It looks like then what we do is we start to move west with Greg uh, out on the prairie, Josiah Greg. Uh, Maybe a little bit less about Greg if you could, because I'd like to move through these, but our time is moving along here. So give us just the elevator talk on Josiah Greg. Who was he and what was he about? Well, Greg was sort of the archetypal pioneer, the the guy that was just always looking at the horizon and saying, oh, I want to go there. And fortunately, he was also a good writer, and he wrote about his experiences on the plains and in the far west. So so he became, for me, the the sort of uh, representative of Manifest Destiny, because he just roamed all over the, the North American continent west of the Mississippi River, uh, over the course of his life, and you know, he touched down in all kinds of important events: the Gold Rush, the Mexican-American War, the Santa Fe Trade. Um, so he was he was like the pioneer, uh, and he was also a loner. He, he he was not somebody that was very gregarious or sociable. He was kind of crusty. So an interesting so the, uh, American type. So the word gregarious doesn't come from his last name. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Oh boy, people are cringing now. <laughs> and then we move on yeah. to some some runaways. Uh, William and Ellen Craft escaped slaves. What um, what was their story? Where were they from, and where well, did they head to? Well, it's a very astonishing story. They were they were a slave couple living in Georgia uh, during the um, you know the 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 uh, antebellum period and. And they were um, determined not to have children because they didn't want their owners to own the children. So they they kind of resigned themselves to living childless. And then the the husband got an idea for a very daring escape plan where his wife, who was who could pass for white, would be disguised as a as a male planter uh, who was ailing with rheumatism and had to go to Philadelphia for treatment and. The husband would go along as as his her personal slave, and so uh, he got her disguised, and they rode out of the south on trains and uh, ships, and made it made it uh, safely to Philadelphia in three days, and then they had a career as liberators of their people. Um, they became uh, spokespeople for abolition in the U.S. and in England. And after the Civil War, they went back to Georgia, their, their home state, and started a school and plantation that 
um, that was, uh, you know, lived on by and, and farmed and, uh, and uh, used by the, the, the slaves in that area who had now been freed. Um, but, of course, the whites didn't like this, and the, the Klan burned them out once, and uh, rival planters uh, who envied their success uh, sabotaged them. But they just never gave up. They, just, they were just undaunted spirits. And um, just, it's just an amazing, amazing story of courage and determination. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're just legendary figures in the, in the African-American community. Wow. Yeah. What, that sounds incredible. And I just have to know, did they have children eventually? Or was yes, they never... had several children. Yeah, they had several children, and uh, they, the children were educated in England. Um, and then some of them stayed in England, and some of them came back to the U.S. with, uh, with their parents. So, yeah, they had yeah. numerous children. Interesting that, you know, Payne comes here to get away from England. And people like William and Ellen Craft have to go to England um, to, to sort of find, uh, you know, a more acceptable or welcoming community. Well, yes, that's the sort of the shadow that that, that hangs over this country. Um, the, the shadow of racism um, is still with us. Um, started with the with the birth of the country because slavery was practiced uh, in, in colonial times. Even people in the North had slaves. Um, and it, it's, it also shows that, you know, how deep our roots go back into Europe and um, just the, the very earliest stages of human development because slaves were, were taken by tribes, you know, as a result of warfare, captured uh, enemies were, were turned into slaves who could provide free labor. Um, so that concept um, of enslaving other people uh, to exploit their labor um, is just it's, it's as old as humanity itself. Mm-hmm. It sure is, and, and uh, obviously we don't have enough time to, to go so deep into slavery and its impact on the country. But I think the crafts are are an excellent uh, example of the issue at that time and, and an amazing example of how they dealt with it. And, uh, the next guy, Veblen, Thorsten Veblen, I, I wasn't, when I saw that, I wasn't thinking of him as an American and, uh, maybe well, I'm a little ignorant to, that was, uh, maybe I'm a little ignorant to, as to where he was from. I've always thought of him as more of a European, but tell me about Thorsten. Well, his parents came from Norway and, and settled in uh, Minnesota and um, Wisconsin. And uh, they were farmers and they were um, craftspeople. They were very self-sufficient. Um, they were um, Spartan in their lifestyle, no alcohol, no tobacco. Uh, they weren't particularly religious, um, but they were very interested in, in education and learning. Uh, Thorson was one of several male children, um, and he was the one that um, seemed to have um, great prospects as a thinker, as an intellectual. And um, he went to college in, um, in Minnesota, Carlton College, and then got PhDs from 
Johns Hopkins and Yale and um, or no Yale and Cornell uh, and then became a teacher at the University of Chicago, the newly founded University of Chicago. And Veblen was uh, a social theorist who was, you know, kind of kind of coming into maturity as a thinker at a time when um, there were all kinds of new ideas swirling around uh, you know, the Darwin's theory of evolution and uh, Freud's theory of the uh, the unconscious and um, anthropology was beginning to develop as a discipline and and Veblen kind of combined all these streams into uh, a theory about how a, a present day social behavior uh, in, a, in an advanced industrial country could be traced back to um, uh, pre-civilized peoples um, who um, who had a social system that depended on exhibitions of prowess and and strength and skill in which um, men dominated and women were subordinated and um, uh, women were, as he put it, trophies of the chase. Um, so he took these, these, these ideas and applied them to a sort of searing critique of, of the Gilded Age and the excesses of, of, of the, the wealth inequality that were prevalent in the, in the Gilded Age and that have a lot of parallels to our own time. So that was what made Veblen an interesting figure to me was that his social theory, which was developed um, at, at sort of at the height of the industrial transformation of the country at the, the late uh, 19th and early 20th century, uh, over 100 years later, uh, seems extremely, extremely relevant and something that we we could learn from. So uh, that that was why I included him in the book, and also his origins. You know, as a somebody living on a farm and having this kind of background of of um, you know kind of the rural handicraft era uh, that that was being supplanted by industrialization, it made him sort of a pivotal transition figure. Yeah, he definitely, yeah, definitely was a visionary, especially about uh, the Gilded Era and the uh, excesses of wealth. I, I, I think I've mentioned Veblen a few times in economics courses that I've taught uh, for that reason. Uh, then we've got Thomas Merton, and we are down to about six minutes here, so maybe we could just touch on each of these for a minute. Thomas Merton, the restless hermit. Um, yeah, well, Merton was a religious figure. He was like a definitely, I would say, a mystic. Uh, but he had a, a, a background as kind of a bon vivant and man about town in, in London and New York. And he had a kind of uh, spiritual crisis that um, he resolved by becoming a Catholic and then deciding that he wanted to become a, a monk. And, and And he entered a a very uh, severe order, uh, no, no talking. Uh, the, the, they, they lived uh, very, very strictly and, and spartanly on a farm in Kentucky. But he was also a writer, and um, he, he was able to persuade his order to let him, him write. And uh, his, his books sold very well and became a source of revenue for the, 
for the monastery and helped it get out of debt and get better equipment for farming. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote, he spoke out on a lot of social issues. So although he was cloistered away in this little hermitage in, in the, in the backwoods of Kentucky, he, he knew about um, the, the, the nuclear arms race. He knew about the civil rights issues. Um, and he was writing about those, about those subjects in a very kind of passionate way. So he was on the one hand a contemplative, and on the other hand, um, he he knew about what was going on outside the walls of the monastery and 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 played a role in in commenting on it. Hmm. And Brummett Echo Hawk sounds like a a Native American. Uh, what what yeah, time frame are we looking at there? Yeah. Uh, well, World War Two. He was a Pawnee Indian from Oklahoma whose family had a the history of, 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 of um, you know, kind of warrior, warrior cult. Uh, and he decided to uphold that uh, family tradition when World War II broke out and he, he uh, went into the army, um, was part of the invasion of Italy, um, exhibited great bravery and, and courage in battle and was decorated. And um, after the war, he became an artist uh, and his his mission as an artist was to uh, raise the stature of Native Americans in in the uh, the eyes of their countrymen and and present Native Americans as Americans just like everyone else. Then we move on to Judith Baca, the muralist. Uh, Judy Baca, uh, she's a resident of Los Angeles where I live and. Uh, she sort of made her name um, when she painted this enormous mural on a, on a flood control basin in the San Fernando Valley, uh, something called the Great Wall, that's uh, over a half mile long and still a work in progress. That It depicts the history of California in a series of panels. But what was remarkable about her was the way she painted it and how she pulled together uh, people from the barrio, kids that had been in prison, gang members uh, and and got them to cooperate and collaborate on working on this moral uh, this mural uh, that that became a kind of a social statement and a a, a healing process for her community uh, and she continues to do that she's a professor at UCLA and uh, has a lot of um, now she does digital work um, but uh, continues to be a muralist and uh, community builder and community healer. Um, so J- Judy was uh, also I was I was trying in this book to get the the, the melting pot idea in the, in the choice of characters. So if you look back over these people, you know you have people from different ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, um, to to sort of show that uh, re- regardless of where people came from, the, the the, the essential American traits were were evident. Yeah, you know that is the American story. It really is a, a tapestry of you know, many many different contributors from varied backgrounds. Hey, we we're running out of time, Arthur. Maybe just a little bit about what you're up to now or what you're planning here over the next month or so. Well, it's all about promoting the book at this point in in these trying times and. Uh, I'm just trying to, you know, pull every rabbit out of the hat that I can in terms of getting the word out. Obviously, a podcast like this is is important. 
Uh, I'm using social media as much as I can, trying to get reviews, um, doing uh, some emailing. Uh, uh, you know, my my plans for actual events have have been postponed. I'm not canceling them, but I'm I'm having to put them off. Um, and you know, I'm trying to find some time to uh, to do some writing as well. Uh, I've, I've got a couple of essays that I've just finished that I'm peddling, uh, one on on democracy, and another on our um, our electoral college and how our electoral college um, uh, kind of skews things in, in our democracy. Um, so we've experienced the effects of that a couple of times in this century, and the outcomes have not always been as beneficial to the country as elections are supposed to be. So that's kind of it for for me. I'm I'm trying to push this book and trying to keep trying to keep writing. Just I think probably like every other writer. All right, Arthur. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been great having you on. Well, my pleasure. I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book. We've been talking to Arthur Hoyle, the author of Mavericks, Mystics, and Misfits. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Mm-hmm.